We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We're going to look at a kind of a high-level view of these two passages of Scripture, kind of get the big picture um, from it. I wanted to read this quote to you uh, from Francis Chan. Again, when I read a quote or I pull something out of a book or thing like that, don't I mean, there's, people have all kinds of views on different people and what they've said or not said or how they're doing things and everything. But I, there's some, some very strong truth, I think, in this quote. And it's going to kind of be our guide as we, uh, really as a church. Um, and so Francis said this. He said, long gone are the days when we should be content with a bunch of people who sing loud, don't divorce, and give to missions. I now want to know I can drop off any member of my church in a city and that person could grow in Jesus, make disciples, and help start a church. He's saying, long gone are those days when we should be just content with someone who, a church that has people that can sing loud, uh, don't get divorces, and give to missions, and sit in pews or chairs or on a couch (laughs) right now, or whatever, and like that, that, let's be content with that. What he's saying, the long gone are those days. And what did you hear what he, he desires and what he was saying? I want to know that I could take any one of my members, is what he was saying, like any person who participates and fellowships with them at the church to be able to be dropped off in another city and that they could grow in their knowledge of Christ, that they could make disciples and ultimately help start churches. You know, really, I would say this is the vision that we have for Redeemer Community Church, that we would passionately and joyfully follow Jesus and make Him known, that we would grow in Him and make disciples who make disciples. And I really believe if we do that, we will need to plant more churches. Um, because as we develop and as we grow, there's going to be opportunity for other communities that need the gospel in other areas to reach the gospel. I mean, what we really find in most research is that really about a 20-minute drive is about the distance uh, where you see participation start to dwindle, or, and actually significantly dwindle, uh, involvement in a church. And so that, that the distance, I think, does matter. And obviously, if you're going to reach your neighbors, it's kind of tough to be like, hey, join me at the church that's an hour away. They're like, okay, well, great. I'm not getting up and... <laughs> And, and coming there most likely. And so obviously your impact if your partnership is with the church. And again, there's nothing wrong with driving a good distance. I'm thankful for some of you that are doing that right now. Um, but the reality is, is most people, it's going to be difficult to be on mission and to invite people and to draw them into a fellowship in a local church. Right? Most realistically, you're probably going to be like, hey, here's a church in this area I've heard or I know would be a good help to you because realistically it might not come with you if you live 45 minutes away. Um, but here's what, here's what I, I mean by this is, is I really believe that if we can develop that as a team, as individuals, as family members, as followers of Christ, that we become more like him. That if say God calls you somewhere else, God says, you know what? I have a different job for you. And you take a job over in California or in Indonesia, or in, Cal- or in um, Africa, or Asia, or somewhere else, that literally you could go there as just a follower of Jesus, not someone who's been seminary trained and all those kind of things, but you could grow in your walk with the Lord, that you could make disciples and help start a church. Like, you could do that. That, that is really, ultimately, if you want to boil down some of the vision of what 
I would love to see out of this church is to see that happen. To where, it, like, I'm not necessary. Yes, we need someone, a pastor shepherd. Every church needs elders to be elder-led and a plurality of elders. We see that in scripture. But ultimately to say, you know what, listen, God has trained you and he's equipping you and you're being developed that is, if God sends you away or listen, there's a community and you have a heart for that community that you could help start a church there. And I really believe that this is a, a great mission and a vision to pursue. And I'm really excited to see where God is taking us. You, you may not know this yet, but we have more than doubled uh, for those of you that were with us the very first Sunday, we've more than doubled in committed adults since we started. Um, I mean, that's exciting. We, we, you know, when we first stepped into this journey, it was like, I don't know how this is going to go. We don't really know how this is going to go. We're just going to pray. We're going to trust God and we'll just kind of take it a baby steps. And if it's slow, it's slow. If it's fast, it's fast. If it's like, it's just not happening. It's like, well, we'll equip a few, this, this 11 adults and then we'll, we'll move on to something else, I guess, or something. And so it's exciting to see how God is, is working in our lives. I would say our lives, all of our lives. And I'm really thankful for that. I'm thankful for, I mean, God has blessed us financially already. I mean, there's a great trajectory to where, I mean, Lord willing, maybe in the new year, we'll be able to move into a, a specific location. We're praying that God will provide that, but he's already providing the financial means to pro, most likely to be able to do that and be sustainable already. And that is just remarkable. And I'm so thankful and I really want to give all the glory to God. He's been so good to us. But here's what we want to accomplish. Yes, we are building a team. You guys are awesome. Uh, but we do want to accomplish ultimately reaching the loss. The, the point of starting a church is if we make disciples, churches need to be started. Like if we just keep making disciples, more, more churches are going to be needed to start it. You think about this. In the area that we're looking to plant, um, just a few miles away from here, about seven, we're right on the radius of that at this house, at Austin and Jennifer's house. They've been so gracious to open their home uh, for all these months so far. So about seven miles from here, if you take a radius from that being kind of the hub or our location, you take a seven mile radius of that, the estimated um, population of that area is about 80,000 people. Now, the way statistics are going with religion um, and a lot of Pew research and Barna research and Lifeway research, there's all these research companies and they poll and take all these uh, statistics and everything and try to determine, I mean, even if we put, I mean, even if we put it at a higher number, but realistically, I would say probably we're closer to about 20% are followers of Jesus. I mean, oh, even in the South, realistically, authentic followers of Jesus who love Christ and pursue him with their life. Not some like, oh yeah, I, I prayed a prayer when I was a little kid and, but like they're not in church, they're not involved, but yeah, I, I'd claim Christ or whatever. I mean, we kind of weed out a little bit and it's just say about 20%. I mean, think about that. That's in just a seven mile radius. That's 64,000 people who do not have a relationship with the Lord. I mean, you see, the, the, the harvest is plentiful. <laughs> Scripture tells us, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. And so that's why I'm thankful even for this, this few, and I really don't say it's few hardly anymore. Um, God is, is blessing and he's working, but if that is our goal, if our goal is to reach the lost, if our goal is not to like have people transfer, because if, if you've been a part of a, an established church, right? I mean, I've been a part of established churches mostly my whole life. Grew up in a church in Charlotte, a Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina, a large ministry at a school. Uh, a Christian school attached to it as well. And, um, but most people who attended our church 
And the new people who came to our church were who? I I think you guys could answer the question because you probably experienced the same thing, right? Transfer. Guy moves to the area. He's looking for a good church. You see, most, most lost people don't just visit church randomly, right? Like, most lost people don't be like, hmm, I wonder what church I should go to today. Should I even go to church today? I, I think, man, you know what? It does happen. Someone's going through a crisis, and they're like, I need something. I need help. And they'll walk into a door. I mean, I've seen that, and I've talked to those people before. But most people, it's not just an invite. You know, I was, I was actually just watching on my, on my way here. I say watching, I was driving. I was listening, okay? Um, to the live stream of the church I was, just came from and, and moved here in our family from in Cal- Calvary. And this is their season. Amanda would know this, and some of you know this. This is their big season, the Christmas holiday season. And they, and they have this initiative every year, I've heard it, pray, invite, serve. So you pray, you invite people to come to us and we serve. Like, we need more people to serve because there's going to be more opportunities to serve. And Liz, there's, I, don't, I do not say that in a bashing way at all. That is something that is needed. We need people to reach people. We need to invite people to, quote, church. But what people need more, even than that, is for you to invite yourself into their life and not just say, like, let me, hey, come to church with me. Let me show you what a follower of Christ looks like by you living in their lives. Let me invite you into a relationship with Christ, not just into a church. And so it's easy to let that be the cop-out, I think, is to just be like, you know what, hey, come to church with, like, hey, like, do you go to church? Nah. Or I used to go, hey, man, we'd love to have you sometime. And you're like, man, I did my job. The job. I mean, and listen, <laughs> thankful for that too, believe me. But even more so than that is inviting someone into your life, a lost person, into your life in the hopes of seeing that person come to saving faith in Christ. And I want you to see what this looks like for Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so if you have a Bible, we're not going to read every verse of these two chapters, uh, but I I do think it is an important thing. And so here's here's kind of one of, I would say, one of our values. You know, uh, when Al Potter was here, he said one one of the key values, the lost matter. Right? I mean, if you look at Scripture, you look at the New Testament, you see that is God's heart, that the lost matter. Remember the story of the, the 99 sheep, right? He has the 99 sheep in the fold, but there's just that one, only one of a, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. 1% are gone. And what does Jesus do? He's, the, the shepherd goes and they find that one who was lost. And then there's, the, then you break it down to 10 and the, the lady like has lost this one coin, like a tenth of all that she has. And she's tearing up the house to look for it. And they rejoice when they find the one that was lost. And Jesus was describing that as the lost coming to faith in Christ and the joy and the celebration we see in heaven. You see the lost matter. And here's the value that comes from, the, if, if we're saying the lost matter, then what should we do? We should be doing whatever is necessary to reach people for Christ. And that's what I want to look at. Just really three things today. There's always, there always could be more points. There always could be more things, but three specific things I want us to look at um, that we need to be uh, doing to reach the law. So number one is this, is cultivate a love for God and others. We need to cultivate a love for God and for others. So if you have a Bible, I want us to read this this passage of scripture. So uh, 1 Corinthians is really a messed up church. 1 Corinthians, and it required a second letter. 
<laughs> they were so messed up it needed another, another letter, uh, 2 Corinthians. But it really was, it was a messed up church and it needed gospel transformation. It needed leadership. It needed people saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. You need to correct this. And Paul was correcting bad behavior. There was a lot of sexual immorality going on in this church. There was other issues and he was trying to deal with those issues. Um, and specifically, as the church is, is not evolving, but as it's growing, as the church is continuing to grow and, and Christ is literally building his church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And as even as narrow is persecuting and, and crucifying Christians along the streets, I mean, it was quoted as saying that there wasn't enough wood in all of Rome to, to hang enough people, all the Christians on the crosses. I mean, the brutality, but it wasn't going to stop the movement of God. And people that tried, and so Paul is addressing these things, and there was the church was, was mixed. I mean, you have Judaism, these Jewish people with all of the Old Testament behind them, right? All of Leviticus, all of the laws, all of the regulations, all the Pharisaical laws that they had added to try to protect you from other law, from the actual law of God. All these things, and they've got this ingrained into their mind and into their heart. And, and now, all of a sudden, the, the gospel's going to the Gentiles. And these Gentile people who have a totally different lifestyle than the Jews did, a totally different value system than the Jews did, are coming to faith. And there's this mixture and this blending of Judaism and Gentiles, and it gets messy, <laughs> real messy, really fast. And Paul's trying to address this, and he addresses two topics specifically. In chapter 8, we're going to see he's addressing this food that was offered to idols. In chapter 9, we're going to see some of the freedoms that he has in Christ um, and what he's surrendering those rights for the sake of the gospel and his witness. And so look at this passage. So chapter, chapter, chapter 8 there, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, and we're going to see this, this first kind of point here. Um, of cultivating a love for God. We see this throughout Paul's ministry in general, but even as we open up this chapter, we see his love, that, that everything that he's doing here is based on, and this is kind of rooted in this cultivating a heart of a love for people and for, ultimately for God and for people. Look at verse one. Now concerning, so he's addressing here right away. He's shifting, right? Now concerning. So moving on from chapter seven, um, where he's speaking about uh, marriage and other um, issues. And he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, quote, puffs up, right? I mean, we all know that, right? As, as someone gets smarter, have you ever been around those people? Someone who has a lot of knowledge, like they can quickly try to embarrass you. And you're like, all right, this is not a person I want to be around because it Knowledge does this, right? It brings pride. It puffs up. He says this knowledge, so even this knowledge of God, what we're going to see, puffs up. But notice this. But what does love do? Love builds up. And, we, and, and then if we just fast forward it a little bit and got to 1 Corinthians 13, we would see the definition of love and what that actually looks like. But he says this. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so, and then we're, we're look towards the, towards the end. We'll come back to it in a second. But even in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Why? Because he has cultivated a love for God. He knows who God is. He loves God passionately. 
He pursues them. We see that in Philippians. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in Galatians. You read all of the letters of Paul. You see everything for him is rooted in the gospel, his love for God. And that leads him to say something so remarkable. He's like, I wish my, you remember this? I wish myself accursed for the sake of my kindred. I think that's the King James Version from what I memorized a long time ago. But basically he's saying like, I would, I would go to hell and I would experience eternal separation for God if it meant the salvation of my people. Do you see how much he loves? That's an incredible kind of love. A love that almost no one is willing to say and actually do. His love, he was rooted in this love for God. He says, like, I count, remember this in Philippians, I count all these things as rubbish. Because why? I, I, all these things, all the, the, the his knowledge, his, his wisdom, his, uh, he was a Pharisee, he was a Jew, he was, uh, he was born a Jew, he it was, I mean, he was educated beyond most people, he was um, basically blameless, he said, according to the law. And he says, I count all that as rubbish. Why? For the far surpassing the knowledge of God and knowing Him and being known by Him. You see, Paul had cultivated a love for God that it had flown into a deep love for others. Uh, Paul David Tripp um, is an author and counselor and a pastor that I have appreciated a lot of his writings. So a lot of premarital counseling and marital counseling, I'll point to a lot of, of what he's written. He's written so many good things on so many topics. Um, and one thing that he's kind of known for that I've used over the years, because I heard it from another pastor before I even saw it in some of his writings, but he's known as, he, he kind of quoted this phrase as preaching the gospel to yourself. He'll talk about preaching the gospel to yourself. And basically, his premise is that we talk to ourselves all the time. You know, we have a tendency to listen to ourselves, right? It's like, and that's what culture is wanting us to do. Their culture is saying, hey, listen to what your body is telling you, who you should be. Right? I mean, that's what we see when it comes to transgender and when it comes to homosexuality. It's like you listen to your body. Listen to what you're, what, who you are and what your body is telling you or what your mind is telling you. Listen to yourself. And, and, and Paul Tripp's point is like, rather than just listen to yourself, preach to yourself. Talk to yourself and go beyond that and even preach to yourself. Because we have a tendency to listen to ourselves. You know, it's like, man, I'm really craving uh, cheesecake. And so you're like, I'm getting in the car right now and we're going to go find this cheesecake today, like right now, right? You know, or it's like, man, I'm really craving this and we'll go pursue that because we really want that. And we can do that in all kinds of areas of life beyond food, right? Like, oh man, I have this, this desire going on inside of me right now. And we know it's a sinful desire, but I'm going to pursue this because right now my body says I need this or my mind's telling me I'm being tempted or whatever. And he's saying, no, you need to, instead of playing defense Go to the offense. And here, I want to give you quick, you can write these down if you want, but four things that he mentioned, some daily practices. If we want to cultivate a love for God and a love that will flow into a love for others, here's how we do that practically through, um, through uh, preaching the gospel to yourself. One he says is this. So this is, again, Paul David Tripp. I didn't write this. So Paul Tripp said, he said, number one is this, gaze on the beauty of Christ. You gaze on the beauty of Christ. So that that's goes to, to Hebrews, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
We're to fix our eyes on him. We look to him. We run the race. See, like, right? I mean, that's what Paul describes. We don't, we don't look around and get distracted. No, you fix your eyes on the prize. You, I mean, you see these guys, these athletes and these ones who are, you're like, man, how do they endure the pain and the, and the difficulty of a season, right? It's the prize. It's the goal of being the best, or it's the goal of winning the championship and holding the trophy up in the air at the end, right? They pursue these things, and that's in front of them. And he's saying, here's what we do. We don't just gaze on a nice trophy. We gaze on Christ. We fix our eyes on Him. And so he's saying, we need to gaze on the beauty of Christ. The second, the second point he says is this, is we remember who we are as a child of God. We remember who we are as a child of God. We really kind of need to remind ourselves of those things. Like, who am I in Christ? Like, if, if I'm in Christ, who am I? Am I a child of God? What does that imply? That implies some amazing truths. It implies some impressive things that I get the inheritance that God, the Son of God deserves, that I get to be co-heirs, as Scripture tells us, with Him. Remember who we are as a child of God. Number three is this, is rest, and this is what we're not good at, rest in His power and provision. That's right, we're the Americans, right? Like, we got to earn. We gotta, we've got we've to accomplish. Like, listen, the world's right in front of you. It's at your fingertips, but you got to pursue it. You got to go get it. And we need to rest in His power and His provision. Like, again, we gaze on the beauty we remember who we are. We rest in His power. We, we rest in what He has done and what He will do. We trust in what He will do. We look for His power and His provision. And then what do we do from that? We then act. And He says we act in reliance upon Him. So we gaze on the beauty of Christ. We remember who we are as a child of God and we rest in His power and provision. And we act in reliance upon Him. And here's the thing. We don't need to just remind ourselves of the gospel. You don't just remind yourself like, oh yeah, I need to reflect and remember and remind myself of what Jesus has done. We need to preach it deep into our hearts. We need to communicate it to ourselves. It's not just a reminding. It's really, it's active. It's even more than that. It's, it's kind of pounding it deep in our hearts till we get it, to what the cost of our salvation, gazing on what he's done, the beauty of who he is. Um, and this is really ultimately, a, it's kind of a spiritual discipline that needs to be cultivated. But when we do these things, it puts everything in right perspective. And this is what Paul did and was teaching the Corinthian church. And, is, and really for us, it's necessary to reach all people for Christ. So first, it's got to be rooted there. It's got to be rooted, rooted in a love, a deep love for God and for others. Now, here's the two practical points that we see specifically right here in chapter 8 and 9 is this, and, and the, first, the second point here that on your, in your notes there is this, we avoid certain freedoms for the sake of others. We avoid certain freedoms for the sake of others. Look at the example that we have right here from scriptures. Look at verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. He's like, there's the knowledge, right? He's talking about knowledge earlier. We know these things. He's like, therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. We know these things, he's saying. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father, from whom are all things and from, we, from whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
However, notice what he says. So we know these things. Like, man, like, there's no such idols. There's no, re- I mean, these things are false. They're fake. They're, they're mimics. They're not real. But he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all people know this. He's like, you might know this as a follower of Jesus, but not all people know this. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, it says this, being weak is defiled. He said, food will not commend us to God. He's like, the food, the actual food doesn't matter. It doesn't commend us to God, he says here. We are no worse off if we do not eat or if we eat. But take care, verse 9, that this right of yours does not somehow become, notice this, a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So basically, if you're sitting there eating food offered to idols, knowing that it's like it's food, it does not matter what it was offered to or not offered to. Be like, for instance, Robbie, you work at Chick-fil-A. If, is it, what, who's the, not Dan, Kathy, Truett, which Kathy is now the, the main, the Kathy in charge? I have no, I see it was even another one. Andrew, thanks. Yes, it's Andrew. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Chick-fil-A. Right, I mean, it's like, like, even if like, I mean, like, I'm pretty sure Andrew hasn't got a bazillion chickens that he's offered to a bunch of idols, and now it's like, all right, send it out to Chick-fil-A everywhere. And then like, we're just eating this stuff offered. I mean, like, no, I mean, that's not a practical thing that we see today. Like, you don't just randomly go to McDonald's or somewhere and you're like, hey, was this offered to idols last night or not? I'm not really sure. And so like, no one's going to think that in our current context, right? But in this context, it was very real. It was very real. And so it was a sensitive thing for some. And they're like, uh-uh, like, like that's wrong. I can't do that. Like, there's no way. And so Paul's, Paul, Paul's saying uh, that we avoid certain freedoms for the sake of others. So he's like, you shouldn't, just because you can eat this meat offered to idols, you shouldn't eat it. Because it might be a stumbling block to others. Because if you eat this and they see you, they're going to be like, Oh, well, I guess I can do that too. And it's going to mess them up. And so notice this. He says, verse 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Man, think about that. Think about what you're saying. I mean, do you have a love for God and for others? I mean, he's saying, listen, your knowledge, he says, and so by your knowledge, so like, okay, yeah, you know it's not a issue that's like, oh, sinful, but your knowledge of that, and he says this, and so by your knowledge of this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, and though he calls it what it is, he says, thus sinning, so what was actually not a sin, (laughs) eating this food, he's saying is becoming a sin because of the view of the other person, and so he says this, it becomes a sin, verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, You sin against Christ. And then here's the statement. He says, therefore, this is the part we're saying, avoid certain freedoms for the sake of others. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. He's like, I'll be vegan, right? Like I'll avoid all meat in front of them if that's what it takes to reach them. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You see, we, that's the goal here. We, we're wanting to win people to Christ and we never want to be a stumbling block. 
by doing certain things that we think, oh, I'm free to do, that will be a hindrance to another brother or another person. So we avoid certain freedoms for the sake of others. And then the third one and final one is this, is we remove obstacles that could get in the way of our witness. We remove obstacles that could get in the way of our witness. And here we see this, in chap- this explained in chapter 9. Um, an example here that we see is Paul's talking about this food for offered idols. And now he tra- transitions to his right to financial um, uh, or, uh, wage for his work as a missionary, as his work as, a, as a, a minister of the gospel, his right to be paid for that. And what we're going to see is he's going to lay aside that because he doesn't want to have an obstacle get in the way of his witness. Look at verse 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right? I mean, how much do we hear that in our culture today? It's my rights. It's my God-given rights to protect myself. It's got my God-given rights to say what I think. It's my God-given rights to... To, to speak out against this or that. And we love to say these things. And he's saying, do I not have all these rights? Do I, we have the right, verse five, do we have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the, other, uh, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working for a living? So he's like, is it only just me and Barnabas who are, we need to work for a living while we're doing missionary work? He says, who serves as a soldier as, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? I mean, he keeps asking these rhetorical questions that all answer yes. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Yes. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he's saying, if we're sowing spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things like you provide for our needs? And he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? But notice this. So he's saying, I have the right to this. I have the right. But notice what he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure, notice this, anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, he was, they're like, okay, if this is an obstacle between you guys responding to the gospel, then I'm going to be a tent maker. I'm going to go and I'll work. And you don't, I don't want to put any burden on anyone because I want to see the gospel flourish and I want to see more people. And if it's going to hinder one person from the gospel, then I'm willing to do this because I don't want any obstacles. Because he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? I mean, he gives more and more examples of this and we could keep looking at them. We could notice this. Look at verse 19. I want, to, I want to focus on these few verses here. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And actually, really, it's a, even more than just a servant. I mean, he really described himself as a slave, like in debt. Like, I am giving myself to these people completely. 
servant to all that I might win more of them. Notice this, that you're going to see this phrase, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Notice that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. You see, like he said in verse 12, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ, He says, I don't want to put any obstacles in the way. I'm going to remove the obstacles. I'm not going to put these cultural bears, not moral issues that are right and wrong, but more cultural issues. I think of it this way, right? My uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law are about to move to Indonesia. And when they get there, they're going to stand out like sore thumbs, right? I mean, there's Caucasian white people with these very blonde children, (laughs) Blue eyes, blonde children, they're not going to look like them. They're going to stand out. But how are they going to connect with those people? Think about it. How are they going to connect? Are they going to be like, hey, you need to be like me, the Caucasian guy. You need to be like American. No, what are they going to do? They're going to learn. That's what they're going to do. They're going to spend the next two years really inundating themselves in the culture and inundating themselves in the language, but not just the language. Notice that they will, they'll learn Balinese or whatever it's called in Bali. They'll learn the, the Indonesian main language, the trade language, as they mentioned on Thursday. But what are they going to do? They, they, when they're going to reach a people, they're going to get the, what they call the heart language, right? They want to know that specific language that it speaks right to that person. Even though the trade language would work, right? They probably could communicate, but there's a deeper level by knowing their language, their heart language, what they know and they talk in their family. But also, too, you might find yourself like, I mean, I don't have to wear a headdress. I don't need to, I don't need to walk around in the market wearing this headdress and stuff. But, but maybe that becomes something that you do to, to get yourself into the culture, to connect. There are going to be certain ways they share meals together that are going to change. They might have sat a certain way, and, 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 but then these people, they sit a certain way, and there's a certain order to things. You see, Paul's saying, I be, to the, my audience, I don't give any, I don't sin. I don't go to the, a, a moral issue and say, well, I'm going to lay that aside so I can reach these people. No, he's saying cultural issues. And we do this all the time. We make people think they got to do this and look a certain way and act a certain way to be a follower of Christ. When Christ, it tells us in Romans 5 that he died while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you after you cleaned yourself up and got yourself better place. He died for you while you were still a sinner. You keep reading, while you were an enemy, while you were weak. All these descriptions are of you apart from Christ. And he says, I'll die for those people. I'll give of myself to them. You see, it's rooted in love. And because you have this deep love for God and for others, you're saying, you know what? I'm going to avoid certain freedoms. There are certain rights that I have. I'm going to avoid those things for the sake of others. I'm going to remove obstacles that could get in the way of our witness. And he's given us this this example. He says, really, in verse 22, look at that. Verse 22, he says, by all means that I might save some. And he's like, whatever it takes, not sinning, but whatever it takes, I'm going to do this. Listen, and the practical example is this, and this is crazy. Timothy isn't a Jew but they're going to go minister to Jews. You know what Paul has him do? 
he gets him circumcised. Because he's going to reach him. Does, does Timothy need to be circumcised? Paul knows he doesn't need to be circumcised. But he knows it might be an issue when we go and minister to these Jews. And so he's like, hey, this is what we're going to do. There's a really practical example of this in Scripture, and I want us to look at it. Look at it with me in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. I want you to, I want you to see this too in Scripture, because this is the Jerusalem Council. You might have heard of it. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. You know, you have all these councils that happen that we don't see in Scripture that I've seen. Uh, um, council and others where you get the Apostles' Creed and some of the Nicene Creeds and some of our really established creeds and determining some of like, what is the canon of Scripture? What is, uh, what is inspired by God and what was maybe just a letter that can be encouraging but isn't Scripture, isn't inspired? And so some of these councils really established some important foundational doctrines, and this was one. This is the first one that we know of, is the Jerusalem Council. Because notice in verse 1, it says in verse 15, chapter 15, so Acts 15, 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, this is not a secondary issue. This is a salvation issue. This is prime. Like you can't, we can't worship together. If you're saying I, there's people that are circumcised and they're not like this, they've made it an actual issue of salvation. They they, They make it clear. You cannot be saved. This isn't like, hey, I think that it's premillennial and I think it's amillennial, or I think there is a rapture, I don't think there's a rapture. Like, we can get into some debates, or I can think Arminian or Calvin, like, those are not first prime level issues. The prime level issue is the gospel. And here he's saying the gospel's being marred by saying you need to be circumcised. And so they're like, hey, we need to have a council. We've got to deal with this. Because again, the Gentiles and the Jews are starting to mix. And so he says, listen, this is a big issue. And so after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles uh, and the elders about this question. So they're going to approach them. So basically they're like, hey, what is, what is it that we need to do? So in verse 5 or 6, it says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was the story of, Cornel, uh, of Cornelius when God revealed to him this, uh, this man that's having this vision as well. They're both having these visions and he goes and he shares the gospel with a Gentile and he believes and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. And he says, And God, know, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So the Gentiles are, can be welcome into the family of God. And notice this, verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts, notice, by faith. And now he says this, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, a burden, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace. So again, it's by grace through faith. We see this. By the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. They receive it the same way as we did. It's by grace through faith. That's how you respond to the gospel. That's how you repent is because God is gracious to you and then you believe in what he's done and you can be saved. It's like, why are we putting this? And I want you to notice this. This is, I think, very fascinating. So James, who's kind of like the head of this church in Jerusalem, they're all like kind of falling silent as you see in verse 12. And it says this, after they finished speaking, James replied and he says, listen to me. And I I want you to see what he says. So Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people. 
And, and so he's going to explain a, a little bit more about God's rescue of Gentiles as well. But I want to skip down to verse 19. Look at verse 19. Therefore, here's my judgment. Here's, he's like, okay, the council's decided. Here's what we're going to do about this. People are saying they need to be circumcised to be saved. Here's the judgment from James. Here's the deciding vote. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Notice this. So we shouldn't trouble them. Shouldn't say you need to get circumcised. But should write to them to, notice this, but he still gives them two things. It's real interesting. Two things. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And you're going like, okay, you have this big council. There's this issue. And we're saying it's by grace through faith. Then James, why are we still adding a few things here? He's not adding them. Notice this. He's not adding them to the salvation issue. He's like, no, no, no. Circumcision's not needed for these people. Their salvation is by grace through faith. That's it. But he's like, because the Gentiles and the Jews are going to be in every town and they're going to be in all these towns mixed together, he's telling these, these believers, notice what he's saying. He's saying, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. I mean, like, What's the big deal about strangled with them? Like, man, first of all, like, how are you killing these animals? Strangling them, I guess. But, <clears throat> but <clears throat> and then so what he's saying is this. He's saying, you're going to be mixed as a people. The Jews and the Gentiles are going to be mixed. And there's going to be some Gentiles who are going to like, this is no big deal. Like, I've been eating meat for all these years, my whole life, and it's never killed me yet. And the Jews going like, We've always avoided that. Like, we're not allowed to, I don't even want to see it. It's going to make me uncomfortable. Literally, my stomach is going to be upset by watching you. And so what is James doing? He's telling the Gentiles to forego a right that they have. They have a right to eat that food. They don't, they don't, it's not like it's sinful and wrong. But it's going back to what we're seeing in our 1 Corinthians passage. The Gentiles, he's saying, hey, as Gentile believers... Why don't you protect the Jews who are going to see that? And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big struggle for them. So why don't you avoid it for the sake of the gospel? You see, we don't want to put any obstacle that's not necessary in the way of people coming to Christ. So really, that's what has to be in our, in our forefront. If, if our goal, as Paul is saying, is to win more people to Christ, then let's not put up, let's not put up barriers and burdens and put expectations on what someone should look like right away. Let's let them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and let that develop in them. And let's, put, let's not put the burden on them to just all of a sudden be like a superstar Christian next week or to dress a certain way that you've always dressed or do a certain thing that you've always done. You see, the gospel is what's most important, not preferences. You see, the issue here was first priority, gospel. There's secondary issues. And Paul's saying, okay, and, and here this Jerusalem council with James is saying like, okay, this is a secondary issue, but it would be really helpful, guys, if you would just avoid these meats in front of the Jews. And that's why Paul would go and be like the Jews when he was with the Jews. When he was with the Gentiles, he would act more like the Gentiles because he wanted to reach that audience. He wouldn't be sinful. He wasn't like, hey, they, they hang out at the strip club, so he's going to go. No, it's not what he's saying. No, he's saying cultural issues, things that are normal. Like you're going to Africa and you're trying to reach these people. You're not gonna be like, hey, let's, let, me teach you, let me teach you what an organ sounds like and let me play the organ for you. Like, no, no, you're gonna take on their culture because that's who they are. It's like, that's not sinful, it's a secondary, third issue, maybe not even an issue actually. 
And so there's that tendency, though, that we can, it just creeps in us. And we're like, hey, you've got to be like me. You've got to act like me. And the gospel is, Paul's saying the gospel's primary. Two quotes, in with these. I feel like I've already been too long. It says this. This is MacArthur. I think it's great. Like I was saying, there's only a few commentaries. And in his commentary, there was these two great quotes, I thought. And so I want to read them to you. It says, if a person is offended by God's word, that is his problem. <laughs> if he is offended by biblical doctrine, standards, or church discipline, that is his problem. That person is offended by God, right? I mean, truth matters. Uh, we want to get the truth right, and the gospel's clear, and there's definitely expectations. And like, it wasn't just Old Testament, like 10 commandments. Jesus took those 10 commandments another step and another layer in the New Testament. He didn't just say like, hey, if you actually murdered someone. No, he's like, if you have anger in your heart, it's as if you've murdered someone already. He took it to another level. So he's like, if someone's offended by God's word, that's their problem. But notice this, what he says. But if he is offended by our unnecessary behavior or practices, no matter how good and acceptable those may be in themselves, his problem becomes our problem. Because we don't want anything to get in the way of sharing the gospel and someone coming to saving faith. And here's the second quote. I think it's good to hear too. He says, Paul's willing adjustment of his living in order to identify with those to whom he witnessed was part of what today we call pre-evangelism. It says, what he did in this regard was not a part of the gospel. It had nothing to do with the actual gospel, but it helped many unbelievers to listen to the gospel and be more open to receive it. You see, it's this work of inundating yourself, putting yourself in the lives of the neighbors and people around you, people who are far from God. It's going to be a little uncomfortable sometimes. You're going to be in some situation you're like, uh-oh, like how did I get myself into this situation? You're going to delicately and through scripture and from prayer probably like handle some of those conversations or handle what am I going to do? Like, because Paul actually keeps going with this topic a little bit more and he talks about self-control. So we've got to be really wise when you're in those situations. Do you have self-control? Have you developed that? Are you growing? And, and so that you're not going to be like, well, they're doing it. And then all of a sudden you're down and you're, you're laying around drunk on the side of the road because you went too far or something, right? No, we self-control. There's wisdom in those situations. But listen, it's as, as uh, MacArthur's saying, it's pre-evangelism work. It's the work prior to evangelism. Most likely a cold conversation about the gospel isn't going to get very far. But if you build a relationship with someone, you spend time with them in their setting, not going to sinful habits or behaviors, but you put yourself in the round, the lost, and put yourself in their lives, that's building some trust, some willingness to open up. This is exactly what Allison and Derek are going to do. They're going to try to build relationships with the Indonesian people. They want to connect with them on a heart level. They're not going to be like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. They're going to be like, oh, okay, great. No, thanks. Right? But if they develop a relationship, as they love people, as they cultivate their love for God and for others, and as they don't allow obstacles to get in the way, and they avoid certain freedoms um, for the sake of the gospel, they'll see uh, the gospel flourish. And we'll see it in our lives in this community as well. And so I think that's a great challenge. It's kind of how I wanted to really end this series on living scent is that it's going to take effort. It can take some uncomfortable situations sometimes. Like if most of us probably, if you've been surrounded by just uh, Christians your whole life, it's going to be really uncomfortable. 
because we want to reach the lost. And so God has you at a workplace. He has you at a, a school or a location or a neighborhood or a community or a Facebook group. He has you there for a reason. How can we not allow obstacles to get in the way? How can we avoid some, maybe some rights that we actually do have? And we're going to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on that because I want to reach these people with the gospel. Because our goal should be like Paul, to reach people. Man, listen to what he says one more time. First Corinthians uh, chapter number nine. He says, man, I have become all things to all people that by all means, this is verse 22, by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Let that be our aim. It's a gospel above all. And like, hey, I'm gonna be willing to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. All right, let me pray. And we're gonna sing one final song together. Father, we love you. We thank you. We do really wanna thank you for your grace that salvation is of the Lord and it is by grace that we've been saved. Help us not to ever put other burdens on people to, to, to their um, being saved. Help us to um, open up our homes, open up our lives to the lost that we may reach them. Not that we become like them. That's not what we're saying. We live in the world, but we're not of it. We want to transform uh, the world through the power of the gospel. And it's your power to save, not ours. But help us to do, as John MacArthur was mentioning, this pre-evangelism work of building relationships and not allowing hindrances to get in the way of being able to share the gospel, but having an open conversation that's built through a relationship of time and energy that's been put into the law. So help us to see that the lost matter and help us to prove that by our actions, by spending time with them. Help us, God, help me to do this. Help each of us to do this. Uh, and, and we just want to thank you for your goodness to us and help us and go with us and ask all this in your son's name. Amen.